Carrie, would you pray for our time in the Word and fellowship? Father, we come before you with humble hearts, with gratitude, God, for what you have given us, what you've allowed for us, God, that we have the privilege to worship you in freedom and in spirit and in truth. God, we lift up your persecuted church all over this world today, God. Pray, Father, that you would move mightily, that you would encourage them, that you would be a lifter of their heads. Father, that you would protect them, that Holy Spirit, you would continue to convert hearts and reveal truth. God, we pray for those imprisoned in your name today, Father. I pray, Father, that you would set their hearts free, God. Father, that they would praise you right where they're at, God. And Father, for our time today, God, I pray, Father, that as we enter into this time, that our hearts would be good soil, Father, and that we would be quick to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's come before his throne and worship our God. Let the water 
surrender our lives Father to you that we would give up our rights and live as people who have been born again of your spirit of your nature you've called us out if we are your people you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You have separated us. You call us holy. Yes. To be holy as you are holy. Yes. Stir up within us, God, a greater desire for intimacy with you, Father. God, we want to know you. We don't want to settle for a lesser God or gods. God, we want to know you. God, your word says that if we seek you, we will find you. If we seek you with our whole heart, God, you call us not to be double-minded, but you've awakened us. To love you with our very being. The greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our bodies, with all of our strength. All of us, God. <laughs> it can't just be turned off and turned on, turned off and turned on. It must be consistent because it is our nature now. Your nature in us, giving us the desire and the power to live for you. So I thank you, Father. I thank you that you're working among us and in us and through us. And that this year, Father, will be marked with maturity greater love and a desire to abide and to walk with our God. Yes. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Application. Sustained effort. Hard work. The Christian life is hard work. It is a life 
that is to be continued at a level that is sustained daily applying truth to our lives that we would then live in the freedom in which He purchased for us. It is the truth that shall set us free. We've got to stop making excuses for the repetitive sins. Every time we keep repeating sin in our life, the repetitive sin in our lives that we're so easily apt to do, we're basically saying that He's not powerful enough to overcome those within us. That that sin is greater than our God, but sin is not greater than our God because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So sin has been defeated. And this is the mindset in which we're living. To throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. And to run with great perseverance. And to allow the character of Christ to be matured within us. This is the point of applying God's truth. The Christian life is a life born of the Spirit of God. He awakens us. We see how doomed we are and the nature which we are born into, which is a complete rebellion towards Him. But He loves us and He reveals Himself to us that we might live and not die. And the Bible says that He sits before us life and death. Then He tells us, choose life. Choose life. To live for God. Not in our own strength. Not in our religious works. Four o'clock this morning. Whoa, my eyes were wide open. And I begin to think of, of, of the understanding of a new day. Do you know what a new day brings? New hope. I don't know how people went to bed last night. But I remember many of the nights. I went to bed, not peaceful. The night, the night before, I, I listen. I fell asleep at nine o'clock. I was peaceful. It was a very nice sleep, rejoicing, praising God. But there were many nights. There have been many, many, many of nights of torment, of long days, pressing days, trying days. Discouraged days, defeated days. And yet the morning still comes. And I love what we find in Scripture is that His mercy is new every morning. Oh, the hope that we can have as He speaks to the very depths of our being. To come out from where we've been. Come out of the shadows. And search for the deep things. 
Deep calls to deep. And he draws us to himself that we might abide in him. But to apply application, it is sustained effort. It's constant. It's hard work. That word application comes from the root word apply to give one's full attention to a task. And then again, we hear it again, to work hard. To give one's full attention. Not half-heartedness, not double-mindedness, but full attention. No distractions. Not giving yourself the right to detour just for a second. But your full attention to keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Your full attention. Think about this week. Think about this morning. Where's your mind gone? What is your hands touched? Where have your feet led you? What has come out of your mouth? That you gave your attention to that. And no one made you do it. You chose to do it. Because in your hearts of heart, yet again, from the depths of your being, you say he's not enough. And oh, how that should bring us to our knees instead of making excuses, but bring us to our knees and say, oh God, you are enough. God, forgive me. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the conviction. Thank you for loving me enough to draw me into your presence that I may be healed, forgiven. As I've been sharing with us over the years, over the past few months as well, but to truly walk in the full understanding that you are completely cleansed. No more shame, no more guilt, Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you have been forgiven. Everything has been wiped clean, and that is how we're living. This is what you're clinging to, the hope that is presented to us in the Word of God by the power of God to sustain us to keep our full attention on the task that is at hand. Think about this. We are to fear God. We ought to tremble at just the thought of His presence. In that fear of God. It doesn't keep us from His presence. No, it helps us to respect His presence. 
and not to strip him down and make him common, but to have that fear of God, not just the reverence, but the fear of God. And yet, though I may have the fear of God, it's the love of God that compels me to come. The love of God does not dismiss the fear of God. And yet in our generation, and as the generations continue, that's what's being taught. Everything's this gooey-ooey love. But His love empowers us to live out His nature Because we are his people. Because we have been born again. But you can't fully understand the depth of his love without first the fear of God. The fear of God. He's holy. He's holy. Holy. And that is what is to mark his people. Holiness. Not these weird rules and all this stuff that many denominations and individuals have tried. (laughs) Thinking that somehow that's sustaining. (laughs) No. But His very presence within you keeps you and guards you. Reminds you, oh, you're mine. You're mine. You're mine, beloved. I am your God. It's no longer you, but I. To apply the truth of God's word changes us drastically. That's why you should see growth in your Christian walk. Not in your Christian work, but in your walk. Your character is being transformed. Because you can't make it about rules and laws. No, it's all about Christ and what He's accomplished. And this is how you're living now on the other side of the cross, and the power of the resurrection. Too many people are living back before the cross. <laughs> but true believers live on the other side of the cross. Our message is the resurrected Christ. If it was just the cross, the Bible says we would be fools. But it's the resurrected life. So to apply the degree in which we study, understand this, what you put in, you get out. So if you're you're not putting in effort, you're not going to grow, you're not going to learn. In fact, you will begin to, as we've been hearing over this past week, erect idols. You will begin to serve a lesser God. And why would you want to do that? To the degree to which we study 
memorize, and meditate on God's Word is a degree in which we understand how it applies to our lives. But understanding how the Word applies is not enough. We must apply it. Application implies action. And obedient action is the final step in causing God's Word to come alive, to come alive in our lives. The application of Scripture enforces and further enlightens our study. And it also serves to sharpen our discernment, helping us better distinguish between good and evil. I mean, ultimately, that's what we're maturing in. To distinguish between good and evil. It's not that, oh, don't do this, or don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. No, no, no. When you understand and you begin to distinguish between good and evil, you don't have to tell me not to do something. Because if I'm already discerning, and that is not the way to go, that's, that's evil, that's the way of the flesh, that's disrespecting God, that's making Him common. No, 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 I'm not a part of that anymore. Not in and of my own self, but because Christ worked in me. I can't unite myself to that which discredits Him. But that which is good, which is honoring, which is truthful, which is pure, oh, that will grow me. That will mature me. That will help me to to gain more of of, of a a Christ-likeness in my life. So now how then shall I live? As under Christ. Under Christ, because we are to be the people of God, doing the will of God for the glory of God. Go to Second Peter, chapter one, verse ten. Scriptures I'm sharing with us this year, and hopes to encourage us to keep moving, <laughs> apply truth. Second Peter one ten. Listen to the word of God here. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard. Underline that, circle that, put that on your mirror this week. And what are you working hard for? Listen, this is the Word of God. Work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Sit with that this week. Meditate upon that this week. Do these things and you will never fall away. This is to the hope of that. As we're talking about application, applying truth, God's word, not man's religion, but God's word to our lives. You're not working hard for your salvation. No, you're saved. But from, if you're truly saved, work comes forth. It's birth. 
within you. So you're not working for your salvation because your salvation is only what Christ accomplished. And that's why we're not struggling and, you know, it's not so burdensome. I love what I heard Paul Washer said the other day when I was listening. It's been an amazing conference that's been going on. Him and Vadi, I always say his name, Vodi or Vadi? Vodi. Vodi. God, I said, Lord, those two together, Jesus. I've been listening to them going, my God, my God. But he said the other day, he said, the only thing you contributed to salvation, to your salvation, is your sin. I said, yeah, God. That's all we got. We can't do anything in and of ourselves. Because what we've done is enough. And our rebellion and our hatred towards Him. So it's God who does everything through Jesus to redeem us, to reconcile us, to save us. Oh, such great salvation. But from that, that rebirth, that regeneration, comes forth a new way of living now. And so the work is the fruit of salvation. So, dear brothers and sisters, as he's speaking to the church, work hard. And what are we working hard for, Peter? To prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things. Do these things. I love that. Next line. And you will not fall away. You will not return to a lesser God. You won't begin to erect lesser gods. You won't begin to defame Christ by making him common. No, you will live for Christ. You will know Christ, but ultimately you will be known by Christ. Go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Application, application. Keep a close watch. Who? You. Keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Stay true. I mean, do you hear these action words? Do you hear these verbs? This is the application. This is, this is the means to apply what you're hearing. Not just come to church when it's convenient for you. Tickle my ears. Make me feel better about me. But no. Sustained work. 
Sustained work. Again, the scripture before, you must. You must. Not, oh, if you feel like it today. If life's not too hard for you. No, no, you must in every season. You must. And so here, this next scripture we hear, keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Stay true. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation. And listen to this last part. And the salvation of those who hear you. Who hear you. Your words matter. What comes out really reveals if you're serving the true God or the lesser God. The lesser God doesn't mind me spouting off, acting a fool. Gossiping, slandering, backbiting, causing division. The lesser God doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to the lesser God. The lesser God doesn't, doesn't mind if we make a mockery of it. Oh, but the true God? He minds. Because you're defaming his character. You're stripping him down. You are re-crucifying him. (laughs) Keep a close watch on how you live and your teaching. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of of those who hear you. Go to Romans 13, verse 14. Again, application, it's action, it's sustained effort, it's hard work. Romans 13, verse 14, instead, clothe yourself. Another action. (laughs) Clothe Clothe yourself with, get ready, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Abide in Him. Remain in Him. Clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Put Him on when you get up. It's His mercies that are new every morning, not yours. Not Mother Earth or any other lesser God. But put on His presence. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Listen, we are at war. 
with the realm in which we cannot see, with the world system, and with our old nature. That old nature that is in rebellion to the God in whom we say we love if we're Christians. And it's just waiting. Give it. Give it just a little. And it will take hold like you've never seen. And then you wonder why you're back where you are. And doing the things you're doing and hiding the things you're hiding. And acting a fool thinking people should just excuse it because that's just how they are. No. No. As you think, so you go. So clothe yourself with the presence of God. You, you have to start doing this. You just can't be words. And so what does that look like? Are you getting up? Are you spending time in the word in his presence, in worship? Do you have a devotional time? Are you setting time aside? Are you praying without ceasing, going through your day, giving yourself to Christ, asking for the Spirit's comfort and leading, testing the Spirit's, engaging in the newness of a life that's being lived out of the nature of God in you. You put on His presence. And you don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. What you take in through the eye gate, what you take in through the ear gate, affects your heart. And it's that posture that I was talking about in prayer. Our our posture, the heart, it should be submitted to God through Christ. And it's not a forced submission. True submission isn't forced. True submission comes when first love is expressed. True love will never force the other to submit. No, when true love is given, you freely submit. Because that love that is given is a love that's for your good. And so we have to stop seeing as if he's for, he's keeping stuff from us. He's keeping us from our desires and our wants. No, we freely lay them down to pick up his desires, his wants, his life. And so you clothe yourself and you do not Do not let yourself think about ways to indulge, indulge your evil desires. You give this realm a foothold. You give this realm 
a foothold. You give this old nature a foothold and it will devour you. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And the old man, that old nature is where? Crucified to his cross. And this realm up here is already defeated. So if I just submit myself to God and resist it, he has to flee. You see, yet though we are at war, you need to wake up to the reality that we are already victorious in Christ. And we can't take that lightly. Because we are bombarded. And that's why Jesus prayed I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to protect them by the name in which you've given me. Because there's work for us to do as disciples of Christ, as ambassadors of Jesus, in a world that is in complete rebellion towards Him. And that someday is going to experience the full wrath of the God in whom they are rebelling against. And yet he calls us out to send us in. And so we're not overwhelmed by this realm. We're not overwhelmed by this realm. And we're definitely not overwhelmed by this realm. <laughs> but oh no. we not time to sleep. It's not time to, to well, maybe today... I'll take the day off from being a Christian. No, it is sustained effort. It's hard work. You have to apply the truth of God to experience the fullness of God as God is working in you to make you more Christ-like in order for you to accomplish the good works in which God has prepared for you to do in this generation. So you are different you're of a new nature now. This week's definition of a major theological term. Here's the word for the week. Redemption. Redemption is purchasing someone's freedom. The sinner is freed from his enslavement to sin and from the curse of God's law by Jesus' death on the cross. Ah, oh, that's good news, you all. Redemption. Purchasing someone's freedom. The sinner is free from the enslavement of sin and from the curse of God's law. How? By Jesus' death on the cross. That's why you're not giving your old nature room in your life to continue to shackle you up. You've been set free. You've been free. If you're truly a Christian, you are free. You don't have to remain enslaved and shackled. But free. Free. First John says, when he writes his letter, I write to you so that you will not sin, but if you do, remember. Remember Jesus. 
Jesus. That's why we don't allow sin. A, a true believer doesn't allow it to, 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 to remain or to take hold. doesn't mean that they won't sin. It just doesn't keep being a mark of their life. No, they repent, they get up, they press in, they move on. It's sustained effort. It's hard work. But the good news is, you've been redeemed. If you're truly a believer, you've been set free from the enslavement of sin. That very thing that you keep returning to, that very thing that lures you, Oh, it feels good. It feels right. I have a right to this. It is your master. It is chaining you up. And you're fighting for that right to be enslaved and to be devoured and ultimately which leads to death. That doesn't even make sense. On this side. <laughs> when you haven't accepted Christ. No. It makes sense. <laughs> it's of that nature. It's who you are. You know no different. But oh when you're born again. And oh. Even maybe before you're born again. And the spirit of God begins to work in you. And to draw you. All of a sudden. You begin to feel this pull in this weight <laughs> like there's something different I ought not to be doing this <laughs> but for those who are truly children of God purchased, redeemed by Jesus <laughs> bless you redemption Purchasing someone's freedom. And that's what he did on the cross, you all. As he endured the mockery. As he endured the beatings. As he endured the chunks of flesh being ripped out of his body. As he endured being nailed. <laughs> as he endured having that, that spear pierce his side. All of it, all of it was for your freedom. If you would just believe that once they took him down from that cross and laid him in a tomb and three days later rose again. I guess finished. It's finished. And oh, what a glorious day when he returns for us. Scriptures that summarize what God must do for a sinner in order to make him or her a Christian. Let's look at these, Acts chapter 11. Again, I wanted to encourage you in these scriptures. Scriptures from our Friday night study. Because as you're sitting down, as you're meditating, as you're memorizing, as you're giving thought to and living out and applying God's truth, 
when you uphold these scriptures, you realize he has accomplished everything for you. So you can have confidence when you get up each day. Put on the presence of Christ. Live throughout your day. And the knowledge of him, the one who loves you, the one who has redeemed you, the one who has chosen you, the one who has called you his own, you realize, wow, you did it all. I'm not even worthy, but yet you did it. So I want to live for you, and I want to love you, Lord. My God, I'm believing and trusting in you. Because how could I not? Because it's pointed out. Over and over and over from Genesis to Revelation. Who you are, how great you are, and the love that you have for your people and ultimately your plan to have a people that you will call your own and they will call you their God. And they won't be half-hearted at it. No, they'll be full-hearted with their whole being living for you. So here's some good news. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. What God must do for a sinner in order for him or her to become a Christian. When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, and listen to this, we can see that God, who? God, has also given the Gentiles, the unbelievers, if you would, Those who aren't the Jews. All the rest of us. The privilege, listen to this, the privilege of what? Repenting of their sins and then receiving eternal life. It is God who brings you, who draws you into repentance so that you may receive eternal life. That's beautiful. God has done this. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. God saved you. Highlight that. Circle that. (laughs) Put that on your mirror. Keep that before you. God saved you. And he saved you by his grace. His power to transform. When you believed. And you can't take credit for this. Listen to this beauty. It is a gift. From God. God saved you by His grace. Remember, grace, the power to transform. When you believed. Oh, how I pray that we have believed. (laughs) And the mark of a believer is a transformed life. And I keep encouraging us to really take heart Lest you are enslaved to a lesser God, worshiping a lesser God who isn't Jesus at all, 
even though you call him Jesus, the lesser God or gods in your life. They only continue to give you a license to sin. That's their cheap grace. But the true God, the true God, by His grace, the power to transform when you believe. That you believe of all that has been revealed to you. And you can't take credit for this It is a gift from God. Wow. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. Through Him, who? Jesus. You Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. All men, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, all men have access to what God is doing among the earth. But not all men will respond or believe. They will remain in rebellion towards Him. But for those who do believe, are being made part of this dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. Oh, thank you, Lord. And that's what those Scriptures ought to bring us to. A place of thanksgiving that what He has accomplished, He has done so that we might be saved... to be engrafted in, to be adopted into His family, that we are now the children of God, given the right to call Him Abba, to call Him Daddy. I don't know about you, I haven't really hung out or been around people who've been adopted. But I have a friend, a co-worker, who's been adopted. And I just love listening to her speak about her family. And I go, wow, that's so beautiful. She doesn't see herself lesser than. That's her family. Those are her parents. That's her brothers and sisters. These are her memories, cherished memories of family time. And I say, God, I want to cherish that with you. God, you adopted me. You didn't have to. You didn't have to take me in. But because of your great love towards me, towards you, like He purchased you. He's liberated you from darkness. He's called you out as His own. He's given you the right to bear His name. He's given you access to the full throne, the power of His throne. 
He's giving you the right to call him daddy. That intimate word, Abba. 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 Oh, what on this earth and this temporal world could ever give you that can compare to that? That identity alone sustains you as you are applying truth to your life. You are my son. You are my daughter. You're part of my family. You are now engrafted in. You're not on the outside. But you belong here. And I keep telling you, that's the deepest need of every human being. They just want a place to belong. That's why they're searching and over and over and giving themselves and taking everything and doing whatever just to fit in. And God says, you don't have to work so hard. Just believe. Just believe that I loved you so much that I sent my one and only son to pay the price to endure my wrath that belongs to you. But I will place it upon him. And I will raise him up on the third day that will break the power of sin and death. And you shall live and not die. You say, oh God, thank you. That ought to humble you. There's a way in which we are called to live, you all. It's as unto Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism, yet another tool that I've placed in your hands. Still within the Ten Commandments we're talking about, Lord's Day 41 is on the Seventh Commandment. So the question, what does the Seventh Commandment teach us? And here's the answer. That God condemns all unchastity, and that therefore we should thoroughly detest it and live decent and chaste lives within or outside of the holy state of marriage. We're not just to continue to live an immoral life, just giving in to all sexual desires and wants and needs, allowing perversion to run amok in front of our eyes, within our own very being. No, you are the people of God living to do the will of God for the glory of God. And yet the porn industry is rising. It's growing more and more and more and more. And I told you before of that one statistic. When hotels see their porn revenue go up, it's when Christian conferences are in town. What on earth? What on earth? How is that? Oh, it's because we keep things hidden. 
Lest anyone knows, what are they going to think about me? Who cares? You've got a porn addiction. You've got sexual appetites and desires that are opposite to what God has created. You better come out of the darkness and into the light. Don't carry that shame, weight of guilt and condemnation any longer if you are a child of God. If you're not a child of God, let that weight of shame, condemnation and guilt crush you. To a point that you would call on the living God to heal you and to set you free. And this is coming from one who lived the darkest of darkest of darkest of darkest of sexual morality. <laughs> Sometimes I whoo, go, Jesus. Whoo, thank God I didn't die where I was at. Doing the things that I was doing. Watching the things that I was watching. Giving myself over to. Just for a sense of belonging. <laughs> we better wake up. We're just not ta- just talking about marriage. We're talking this to the single people as well. We are to be a pure people. God created sex, and sex is good. When it is fulfilled in the design of how God created between man and woman, husband and wife, outside of that, it's sin. It's filth. And it might feel good, and it might taste good in the moment. But trust me, it's shackling you up. And you'll become a slave to it. You'll become a slave to it. And it'll take you to the deepest, darkest place you never thought you would end up. There's a case now from Atlanta where two men who adopted two little boys sexually have been sexually molesting them And then not only that, pimping them out to other pedophiles. I think there were 9 and 11. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, they were special needs. And everyone in the Christian community is pointing their finger at those men. And I said, yes, it's devastating what is happening there. But don't be so quick because they're gay. To think that's all that comes from the gay culture. Lest we forget there's plenty of heterosexual deviants running amok. <laughs> running amok. You give yourself over, no matter what your desires are. If you're not in Christ, you give yourself over to the filth of this world. And it'll keep dragging you down, dragging you down, dragging you down. I gotta wake up. There's a reason why God has designed what He has designed because it's perfect. But the enemy, all he knows how to do is to distort it. That's all he's got. 
That's all he's got. And he knows the nature that we're in. So he fuels it. So you can give in and you can keep doing whatever you want to keep doing, but do not think that you're going to stand before God and be let in. Enjoy what you have on this side. But the wrath of God is coming. And you will be swallowed up in it. If you do not repent and be restored. And after you repent and you're restored, oh, you know what that nature is like. That's why you don't give, as the scripture we just read, you don't think of ways to indulge those evil desires. Keep your eyes pure. Keep what's coming before you and what's going in your ears. Keep a watch. The enemy is seeking, he's prowling around seeking whom he may devour. But you can live as a child of God upright amongst a wicked and perverse generation. And it's getting more wicked and perverse. And we know it's going to continue to get more wicked and perverse. But it shouldn't shock us. And we're not pointing our fingers at them. No, we're crying out to God on their behalf. God, if you've done it for me. God, you could do it for them. Oh, God, have mercy. Oh, God, have mercy. Because someone prayed for you. (laughs) Someone prayed for you. So we got to stop turning up our nose. We got to stop thinking that somehow we're better. When you know good and well, if you gave in to your appetite, you would be right there among them. That's the reality. Everyone's so confused nowadays about their identity. You don't think the enemy is pouring out in these latter days to bring such confusion. The church better wake up. The church better wake up. You say, wow, that's all from that one question? Yes. Did you not hear it? What does the seventh commandment teach us? That God condemns all unchastity and that therefore we should thoroughly detest it and live decent and chaste lives within or outside the holy state of marriage. And there's plenty of scriptures you can go meditate upon that are in the notes. The second question, does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? Here's the answer. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That is why God forbids all unchaste actions. Oh, let's take it a little bit further. The looks the talk, the thoughts, the desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. God forbids it. And I would even take it a little step further. God hates it. You keep giving in to those desires. You keep being entertained by those desires. 
and you don't know what you're doing to your very soul. You're not valuing your soul. What's well, not really hurting? What well, now you're saying I can't watch this or I can't do this or I can't do that. If that's how you see your Christian life, then don't be a Christian because you're truly not a Christian. When you are truly saved, when you are truly redeemed, again, you don't have to tell me not to. Why would I? Oh, in the beginning of my walk, sure, it was a big old war going on inside me. <laughs> but it wasn't I fully surrendered. Like, God, I don't want, I don't want it. I'm tired of it. It's sin. It's a nature that I keep going back to because in and of my heart, I'm saying to myself, you're not enough. And if I could just keep this little piece of me, then I would be whole. And you can't keep anything of your old nature. Anything of your old nature. You are dead to it. If you're truly a Christian... If you're truly a Christian, the very things that we're giving into, the very things that were that are luring us and saying, well, it's not that bad. Do you realize it is bad? You're taking it in, but then you're also contributing it to the lives that it's destroying out there. I say, God help us. To be the holy people of God. To be the holy people of God. Does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? No. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That is why God forbids all unchaste actions. The look. The talk. The thoughts or desires, and whatever whatever may incite someone to them. Oh, that we would wake up in this generation, and that we would be broken for what we are seeing. It's a warning sign. Jesus is returning. <laughs> the devil is out. The world system is out and the old flesh is out to destroy others. We ought to be diligent to live upright among them, declaring the gospel to them that there is freedom. Not everyone is going to want freedom, but you never know who you will come up along that you would share the hope of Christ and that's what they've been waiting for. To hear. Go to First Chronicles, walking through Scripture. Again, it's going to be played over us because I'm not going to butcher all those names. <clears throat> but I do like to read again the reminder of why we are in First Chronicles and the importance of studying this book because of the application that we can take from it. 
Again, it's a long list of the genealogies. But genealogies such as the ones in First Chronicle may seem dry to us, but they remind us that God knows each of his children personally. Even down to the number of hairs on our heads. We can take comfort in the fact that who we are and what we do is written forever in God's mind. If we belong to Christ, our names are written forever in the Lamb's book of life. God is faithful to his people and keeps his promises. In the book of 1 Chronicles, we see the fulfillment of God's promise to David when he is made king over all of Israel. We can be sure that his promises to us will be fulfilled as well. He has promised blessing to those who follow him who come to Christ in repentance and who obey his word. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedient brings judgment. The book of 1 Chronicles as well as 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings is a chronicle of the pattern of sin, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration of the nation of Israel. But in the same way, God is patient with us and forgives us our sin when we come to him in true repentance. We can take comfort in the fact that he hears our prayer of sorrow, forgives our sin, restores us to fellowship with him, and sets us on the path to joy. So 1 Chronicles chapter 4 through 5, verse chapter 5, verse 17. We're going to have to hear verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4 because the Bible app doesn't let you pick and choose. You have to start at the beginning until the end. But Carrie, stop it at verse 17 of chapter 5. And as you're listening, perk up and listen when you hear the name Jabez. Because we're going to hear this beautiful prayer that is found, that is tucked away in the genealogy that's going to be read. From a man who was given a name because of the pain that he caused his mother. And yet, this man who's been marked with that name his whole life. Listen to the beautiful prayer that we're going to hear him pray to a God in whom he calls upon. So, Carrie? Chapter 4. Other Descendants of Judah. The descendants of Judah were Perez, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shobal. Shobal's son Reah was the father of Jahath. Jahath was the father of Ahumai and Lahad. These were the families of the Zorathites. The descendants of Etam were Jezreel, Ishma, Edbash, their sister Hazelalponi, Penuel, the father of Gedor, and Ezer, the father of Husha. These were the descendants of Hur, the firstborn of Ephrathah the ancestor of Bethlehem. Asher, the father of Tekoa, had two wives named Hela and Nera. Nera gave birth to Ahuzam, Hefer, Timeni, and Heashtari. Hela gave birth to Zareth, Izhar, Ethnan, and Kaz, who became the ancestor of Anab, Zobibah, and all the families of Aharal, son of Haram. There was a man named Jabez who was more honorable than any of his brothers. His mother named him Jabez because his birth had been so painful. 
He was the one who prayed to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and expand my territory. Mm. Please be with me in all that I do and keep me from all trouble and pain. Wow. And God granted him his request. Caleb, the brother of Shua, was the father of Mir. Mir was the father of Eshton. Eshton was the father of Beth Rapha, Pesia, and Tehenna. Tehenna was the father of Irnahash. These were the descendants of Rika. The sons of Kenaz were Othniel and Sireah. Othniel's sons were Hathath and Meonathai. Meonathai was the father of Ophrah. Sireah was the father of Joab, the founder of the Valley of Craftsmen, so called because they were craftsmen. The sons of Caleb, son of Jephunneh, were Eru, Elah, and Naam. The son of Elah was Kenaz. The sons of Jehalalel were Ziph, Ziphah, Teriah, and Azarel. The sons of Ezra were Jether, Mered, Epher, and Jalon. One of Mered's wives became the mother of Miriam, Shammai, and Ishbah, the father of Eshtemoah. He married a woman from Judah, who became the mother of Jerod, the father of Gedor, Heber, the father of Soko, and Jekuthiel, the father of Zenoah. Mered also married Bithia, a daughter of Pharaoh, and she bore him children. Hodiah's wife was the sister of Nahum. One of her sons was the father of Kelah, the Garmite, and another was the father of Eshtemoah, the Maacathite. The sons of Sheman were Amnon, Rena, Ben-Hanan, and Telan. The descendants of Ishai were Zohath and Ben-Zohath. Descendants of Judah's son, Shelah. Shelah was one of Judah's sons. The descendants of Shelah were Ur, the father of Lekah, Laeda, the father of Marisha, the families of linen workers at Beth Ashbia, Jochim, the men of Kozabah, and Joash and Seraph, who ruled over Moab and Jeshubai Lehem. These names all come from ancient records. They were the pottery makers who lived in Nataim and Gedera. They lived there and worked for the king. Descendants of Simeon. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Jerib, Zohar, and Shal. The descendants of Shal were Shalom, Mibsam and Mishma. The descendants of Mishma were Hanuel, Zakur, and Shimei. Shimei had sixteen sons and six daughters, but none of his brothers had large families. So Simeon's tribe never grew as large as the tribe of Judah. They lived in Beersheba, Moladah, Hazar Shul, Bilhah, Ezem, Tolad, Bethul, Horma, Ziklag, Beth Markaboth, Hazar Susim, Beth Birai, and Shearaim. These towns were under their control until the time of King David. Their descendants also lived in Etam, Ain, Rimen, Token, and Ashan, five towns and their surrounding villages as far away as Baalath. This was their territory, and these names are listed in their genealogical records. Other descendants of Simeon included Meshobab, Jamlek, Josha, son of Amaziah, Joel, Jehu, son of Joshabiah, son of Sereah, son of Aziel. Elioenai, Jehekobah, Joshohiah, Asaiah, Adiel, Jezemiel, Benaiah, and Ziza, son of Shiphai, son of Alon, son of Jedeah, son of Shimri, son of Shimea. These were the names of some of the leaders of Simeon's wealthy clans. Their families grew, and they traveled to the region of Gerar, in the east part of the valley, seeking pasture land for their flocks. They found lush pastures there, and the land was quiet and peaceful.
Some of Ham's descendants had been living in that region, but during the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah, these leaders of Simeon invaded the region and completely destroyed the homes of the descendants of Ham and of the Meunites. No trace of them remains today. They killed everyone who lived there and took the land for themselves, because they wanted its good pasture land for their flocks. Five hundred of these invaders from the tribe of Simeon went to Mount Seir, led by Pelatiah, Neriah, Rephaiah, and Uziel, all sons of Ishai. They destroyed the few Amalekites who had survived, and they have lived there ever since. Chapter 5. Descendants of Reuben the oldest son of Israel was Reuben, but since he dishonored his father by sleeping with one of his father's concubines, his birthright was given to the sons of his brother Joseph. For this reason, Reuben is not listed in the genealogical records as the firstborn son. The descendants of Judah became the most powerful tribe and provided a ruler for the nation, but the birthright belonged to Joseph. The sons of Reuben, the oldest son of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The descendants of Joel were Shemaiah, Gog, Shimei, Micah, Reaiah, Baal, and Beerah. Beerah was the leader of the Reubenites when they were taken into captivity by King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. Beerah's relatives are listed in their genealogical records by their clans. Jeiel, the leader, Zechariah, and Bela, son of Azaz, son of Shema, son of Joel. The Reubenites lived in the area that stretches from Aror to Nebo and Baal-Meon. And since they had so many livestock in the land of Gilead, they spread east toward the edge of the desert that stretches to the Euphrates River. During the reign of Saul, the Reubenites defeated the Hagrites in battle. Then they moved into the Hagrite settlements all along the eastern edge of Gilead. Descendants of Gad Next to the Reubenites, the descendants of Gad lived in the land of Bashan as far east as Salica. Joel was the leader in the land of Bashan, and Shapham was second in command, followed by Jani and Shaphat. Their relatives, the leaders of seven other clans, were Michael, Meshulam, Sheba, Jorai, Jachin, Ziah, and Eber. These were all descendants of Abihail, son of Hurai, son of Jeroah, son of Gilead, son of Michael, son of Jeshishai, son of Jado, son of Buzz. Ahai, son of Abdiel, son of Gunai, was the leader of their clans. The Gadites lived in the land of Gilead in Bashan and its villages, and throughout all the pasture lands of Sharon. All of these were listed in the genealogical records during the days of King Jotham of Judah and King Jeroboam of Israel. Amen. Amen. Chapter 4, verse 9. There was a man named Jabez who was more honorable than any of his brothers. His mother named him Jabez because his birth had been so painful. He was the one who prayed to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and expand my territory. Please be with me in all that I do, and keep me from all trouble and pain. And I love it that Scripture just doesn't stop there. It says, and God granted his request. In the middle of all of this being laid out to a people that is being returned back from captivity to their homeland. All of this is being laid out. It's, it's, it's the inspired word of God. God saw it fit as the Holy Spirit 
inspired the writing of Chronicles to list out the genealogies. It may We may not have an understanding of it, but these people, I'm sure, ate it up. And we ought to eat it up. Because ultimately, it's the rich history. It's the rich history of God's plan and God's purpose to bring forth the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus, you all. But to see this tucked away, in the middle of this, this account of Jabez. Oh, let it be said of us that we would be an honorable person and that we too would pray and ask God to bless us and to increase our territory. Further, His purpose, His plan, His mission, not for our own being, Make me comfortable, do for me, do for me, do for me. No, 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 no. But because he's our God. And we can rest assured that he hears our prayers. And he is faithful to complete that which he has begun in us. I want to point one more thing out to you. Chapter 5, verse 1, the oldest son of Israel was Reuben. And yet this is the second time that we see the firstborn give up his birthright for something temporal. His lust, his desire to dishonor his father by sleeping with one of his father's concubines was more important to him than his birthright. Careful what's luring you out. And don't be so quick to give up your birthright. Go to Acts chapter 25. That's where we're heading. Paul is still in prison. The Jews want him dead, but God has a purpose. And I'm telling you, when I was just praying through, studying, and reading through chapter 25... I was reminded from one of the commentaries that I was studying. (laughs) Ultimately, Paul has to get to Rome. Paul, before Christ, Saul, who was this great Pharisee, who had a lot of clout, prestige in his day. He was a murderer of Christians. He round them up. He sought after them. He stood by while Stephen was being martyred. This is the guy in whom I'm talking about. This is the same man who the Holy Spirit (laughs) captures within the Word of God to encourage us because it encourages me when he says, as prompted to be noted, The gospel in which I preach, man did not teach me. No, God was pleased to reveal himself to me. He has been, he's he's so bold now as a believer in Christ. That he was, he knows that he was called. Even before he was placed in his mother's womb. 
And you say, well, how do we know that for sure? Because his purpose all along, God wants him to go to Rome, where he will eventually die. Being a Jew, guess where he was born? In Rome. And it's from his birth, before his birth, when he was fashioned and formed in the secret place, that Rome ultimately would be his homeland, that he would then, at this point in his life, now being a Christian, can appeal to Caesar so that he would go to Rome. If he had not been born in Rome, he could not appeal. He would have been led to the Jews for them to kill. But do you see the inner workings, you all, of God in your life? Even before you were placed within your mother's womb, He already purposed you. He knows the plans that He has for us. He's already numbered the hairs on your head. He's prepared good works for you to do. For his kingdom's sake. <laughs> that you can declare when you get up each and every single day as his mercies are new. But that you can rise up and say, I will see the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. No matter what is happening all throughout the earth. I will see the goodness of the Lord. Because I have been purposed. Planned, chosen. I have been called out. I have a place in which I belong. It is in a family. It is in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And it's for my good. Oh, the confidence that you can have. But to see the inner workings of all of this, you just can't read and be like, oh, okay, this is what's going on. Paul. No, this is... God, who knew all along his purpose for Paul. Paul didn't know all along, but Paul knows now his purpose to get to Rome. Three days after Festus arrived in Caesarea, to take over his new responsibilities, he left for Jerusalem, where the leading priests and other Jewish leaders met with him and made their accusations against Paul. Boy, the devil doesn't quit. He wants to snuff out, he wants to quiet this man. The enemies of God are constantly hounding the people of God and the purposes of God trying to detour it, trying to stuff, snuff it out, but darkness cannot extinguish light. God's plan and God's purpose will come about. But these people show, it's been years, you all. These people are still holding on to the anger. They want him dead. Silenced. So they asked Festus, as a favor, to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, 
planning to ambush and kill him on the way. But Festus replied that Paul was at Caesarea's, and he himself would be returning there soon. So he said, those of you in authority can return with me. If Paul has done anything wrong, you can make your accusations. About eight or ten days later, Festus returned to Caesarea. And on the following day, he took his seat in court in order that Paul be brought in. When Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and made many serious accusations they couldn't prove. Paul denied the charges. I'm not guilty of any crime against the Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman government, he said. Then Festive, wanting to please the Jews, asked him, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? But Paul replied, No, this is the official Roman court, so I ought to be tried right here. You know very well I'm not guilty of harming the Jews. If I have done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I am innocent, no one has the right to turn me over to these men to kill me. Listen to this. I, calling on his birthright, calling on the place in which he was born. He is a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. Festus conferred with his advisors and then replied, Very well, you have appealed to Caesar and to Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa arrived with his sister Bernice to pay their respects to Festus. During their stay of several days, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. There is a prisoner here, he told, he, he told him, whose case was left for me by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the leading priests and Jewish elders pressed charges against him and asked me to condemn him. I pointed out to them that Roman law does not convict people without a trial. They must be given an opportunity to confront their accusers and defend themselves. When his accusers came here for trial, I didn't delay. I called the case the very next day and ordered Paul be brought in. But the accusations made against him were any of the crimes I expected. Instead, it was something about their religion and of a dead man named Jesus, who Paul insists is alive. I was at a loss. I know how to investigate these things. Oh, I'm sorry. I was at a loss to know how to investigate these things. So I asked him whether he would be willing to stay trial on the charges in Jerusalem. But Paul appealed to have his case decided by the emperor. So I ordered that he be held in custody until I could arrange to send him to Caesar. I'd like to hear the man myself, Agrippa said. And Festus replied, oh, you will, tomorrow. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice arrived at the auditorium with great pomp, accompanied by military officers and prominent men of the city. Festus ordered that Paul be brought in. Then Festus said, King Agrippa, all who are here, this is the man whose death is demanded by all the Jews, both here and in Jerusalem. But in my opinion, he has done nothing deserving death. However, since he appealed his case to the emperor, I have decided to send him to Rome. 
But what shall I write the emperor? For there is no clear charge against him. So I have brought him before all of you, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we examine him, I might have something to write. For it makes no sense to send a prisoner to the emperor without specifying the charges against him. Come on. Come on. Look at this. Jesus. And there are Christians today facing the same chaotic mess that Paul is facing. I just posted a case yesterday of a woman who's been arrested, who's going to be tried, and it's basically they want her dead. And so her case hasn't been presented yet, and so they're asking people to pray for a speedy trial and that the charges would be found frivolous and that, that nothing will stick and that she would be set free to return back to her husband and her family. But what this woman is enduring because of her faith in Jesus, because of her testifying about Jesus, it has angered people in her country, and they want her dead. They want her dead. And I was thinking about her, as I, because I already studied this week for this chapter, it's like, wow, here it is today. But she's not the only one. You will endure persecution for the sake of Christ. You will. There's no way around it. And especially as the world keeps getting darker and darker, Christians are going to be pushed further and further out. But consider it joy to suffer for Christ. You don't go look, you don't go out looking to suffer. <laughs> but when it comes upon you, Consider it joy, because you are worthy to suffer for the one who suffered for you. Go to Psalm 5, encouraging us to look up. We're back in the book of Psalms. The psalmists were transparent in all that they were facing and going through. And yet we hear another psalm written by King David. O Lord, hear me as I pray. Pay attention to my groaning. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. For I pray to no one but you. Listen to my voice in the morning, Lord. Each morning I bring my request to you and wait expectedly, expectantly. Oh God, you take no pleasure in wickedness. You cannot tolerate the sins of the wicked. Therefore, the proud may not stand in your presence. For you hate all who do evil. You will destroy those who tell lies. The Lord detests murderers and deceivers because of your unfailing love I can enter your house I will worship at your temple with deepest awe lead me to the right path O Lord 
for my enemies will conquer me. Make your way plain for me to follow. My enemies cannot speak of a truthful word. Their deepest desire is to destroy others. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with flattery. Oh God, declare them guilty. Let them be caught in their own traps. Drive them away because of their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing joyful praises forever. Spread your protection over them, that all who love your name may be filled with joy. For you bless the godly, O Lord. You surround them with your shield of love. Oh, come on, you all. This is our God. This is having an intimate relationship. This is from a heart of a man who knew his God. He had his errors. He had his own sin. But what was greater than his errors or his sins was the God in whom he called upon. Great are you, O God, that we would know our God. That we would see him for how he reveals himself. In scripture. And I love verse 7. Oh, that Christians would have a heart like David and understand and understand what they are given, the opportunity to come and to worship their God. He says, because of your unfailing love, I can enter your house. I will worship you, I mean, I will worship at your temple with deepest awe. Oh, that we would wake up and understand the privilege it is. It is because of his unfailing love that we can come together and to worship our God, to seek him together, to have a deep awe. Oh, that we wouldn't take for granted and neglect and coming together and meeting together for the purpose of our God, to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him. Proverbs 18, verse 19. One nugget of wisdom I'm throwing out to you. From the book of Proverbs. An offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars. And I love this one commentary I read on just this one verse. And here it is. It is a rule of nature 
that offending those who love you may create hatred and revenge. Because they gave their affection, loyalty, service, and trust, the offense strikes deeper in their soul and requires more repair than if done by merely an acquaintance or a stranger. So, with this understanding, be extra careful with those closest to you. Again, there is a way in which we are called to live, and it is unto Christ. I'm going to close us with this last song of worship, and then I'll close us in prayer.